Welcome to another episode of The Sample Hour. Um, today is probably my, uh, today's episode is probably going to be my favorite. So far, this interview's been my favorite. No offense to the other guests, I mean, it was all awesome, but I don't know, talking to, talking to this guest, um, it's really kind of helped me with figuring out a direction where I want to go with my life and everything else like that, so... Not not necessarily that, but it just like helped me put a lot of my thoughts in congruency that weren't necessarily in congruency, if that makes sense. So, uh, special shout out to uh, Gino Denning. Thank you for coming on as a guest. Looking forward to having you on again in the future as a guest. I really appreciate your wisdom and kind words and your grace. And um, honestly, I hope when I'm your age that. Uh, you know, I, I, I have the same attitude and way about me that you do. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's awesome and it's, uh, it's very much so appreciated. I also want to say a special thanks to Jan Irvin for, for setting me up with the Gino Denning interview. Um, and if you guys don't check out Jan, go check out Jan's podcast, not stick media podcast or read his articles, man. People can hate on him all they want, but I, I've never seen Jan not logically defend himself. And the only the only arguments people have against Jan argument against Jan Irvin are all logical fallacies. Um, so I mean, like if you don't if you disagree with Jan and it makes you that angry, you should. I mean, chances are you know you should ask yourself some questions. So th- special shout out to Jan. Look for his article that's coming out, man. I've been talking to Jan, and his new article that's going to be coming out is going to be pretty powerful. Um, and hopefully, I'll have him on as a guest again pretty soon. Uh, special shout out to, uh, Mick Guzman for at Postal Poet on Twitter for introducing me to the Trivium Method and, and Gino Denning and Gnostic Media Podcast. Just want to say thank you to you, Mr. Guzman. Uh, I would also like to say hello to Michael Espinoza, listener who contacted me from Australia, said some very kind words. It's always appreciated, guys. I mean, anything, you know, uh, you know, it's it's cool to hear from you when you listen and you enjoy something. Like, it really kind of, I mean, I couldn't put a dollar amount on any of that. I mean, it's it makes makes doing this, like, I, I'm always going to do this, but it makes doing this always special. So, um, if you guys do like this, you know, like me on Facebook, go to www.facebook.com forward slash the sample hour, like it. Follow us on Twitter, interact with us, man. I mean, you know, Wes, you know, Wes can't do as many episodes. Hopefully soon he's going to be coming back to do more. Um, you know, I mean, you know, both of us would love to interact with you guys. Uh, it's, it's always fun. I mean, it's always cool to, to connect with like-minded people. Um, also want to, you know, say, uh, say, uh, you know, shout out to, uh, to Burt Kreischer. Um, it was awesome. We saw him again live on Friday and Burt Kreischer is just so funny, man. I mean, he doesn't even tell jokes. He just gets on stage and talks. And he's just so funny, man. He's such a real human being. And uh, so shout out to Bert Kreischer. Go to Amazon.com and buy Bert's book. Um, Bert is just an, an awesome human being. And uh, people like Bert needs, you know, I think they deserve to be rewarded. With that being said, go to GoFundMe.com. Search Izzy Rock's podcast and give Izzy Rock some money. Please donate. Uh if it wasn't for Izzy, there would be no sample hour. There'd be no lots of podcasts that have come about. But Izzy and No Sesquihanna really kind of helped a lot of people get started. So special thanks to them. But I mean, especially Izzy Rock. You know, uh, 
you know, help him out, man. I mean, he's just asking for some money to upgrade his podcast equipment, man. I mean, everybody likes it. I mean, you know, he's just a normal guy who works in a freezer at Meyer. So please go and donate to Izzy. That being said, if you have any money after you buy Burt Kreischer's book and donate to Izzy Rock, please, please, please donate money so I can go to Alma Summer's Jackal Freedom Festival. I mean, if you guys are around Arizona, I mean, you guys should look into doing it as well. It's a free event. Should be pretty cool. It's a uh, part of it's like kind of a liberty, liberty uh, movement, social social club event, and uh, yeah, it should be a good time, man. I mean, it's you know you can fellowship with some like minded individuals. Um, so with that being said, guys, thanks again for listening. Please rate and review on iTunes. I know it's uh, it's I mean iTunes doesn't really track anything but that. It's totally inflated, just like everything else in the U.S. economy. Um, but uh, again, want to say thanks to Gene. Um, but there's going to be a part two, and then uh, I should be recording with Gene again, hopefully in the near future. Um, but anyways, guys, thanks for tuning in, and uh, enjoy the show. A record of the delightful piece they're going to play this evening. Ladies and gentlemen. we've been waiting for is here. I, I have something to tell you.
You mean after the fact? Yeah, after the fact. Yeah, that's, <laughs> okay. That's what I meant to say. I was. It was a late night last night. We had a we had a comedy show, so um, we went and saw uh, Burt Kreischer and Dayton, and I drove back and I got back at like five in the morning. And I was like, all right, I got I got Gene in the morning. Well, now now I can say touche. <laughs> <laughs> I, I started this uh, this confusion. <laughs> no worries, but. Um, but anyways, I, we were just having a great conversation, and uh, I wasn't recording. So, uh, anyways, Gene. Um, well, we we decided that we were going to expand a little bit beyond what uh, most of the podcasts that I've been, been involved with are, are concerned with, which which is the very basic uh, method of of using the trivium or the first three of the seven liberal arts and sciences, um, and. How does how does that relate to the art of living? How does that relate to to a person's life? How does it add satisfaction and uh, and uh, bring a quality of of um, uh, value to one's individual life? And this is where we start with is with the individual. And so what I found is just telling my story, which I've related somewhat in the past, but at the time that that uh, these pieces of the trivium, uh, in complement with the quadrivium or the second for the liberal liberal arts and sciences having to do with number and quantification, uh, but the trivium, uh, general grammar, uh, Aristotelian logic and uh, formal rhetoric uh, was just given to me without my actually realizing that I was absorbing this. Um, when I was six years old, I started public school after having gone to a private kindergarten. And now, oddly enough, in my late 60s, I'm starting to see just how important that early, that one year of kindergarten was to setting my course, which was to be curious, to keep asking questions. And uh, I believe that was given to me by this particular lady who was my kindergarten teacher, who, who just always asked us to ask questions. And uh, so when I was six years old and started to begin to learn how to read in public school, I had all the childhood diseases, and I missed a lot of my first year in, in school and quite a bit of my second year. Just, just with the regular mumps, measles, had scarlet fever, uh, that type of thing. And so by the time I got into fourth grade, I essentially was illiterate, and I was just being passed on. And my mother, I started in a new school, and luckily this uh, teacher, after the first day of school, when we had to read aloud to the class just to see what our level was, and I was the worst reader in the class, so she called my mother up and asked if she could come down this afternoon to discuss the situation. And she more or less uh, told my is that I couldn't read. And my mother says, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. So she started to teach me how to read, how she was taught to read in first and second grade in the 1920s when she was going to public school. And she happened to be 
growing up in the southwestern part of the United States, southern New Mexico, and they were still using the remnants of the of the one-room schoolhouse, the Dame schoolhouse. Although she had a number of, of teachers, the, the teachers were still using other people in class and even from other grades, upperclassmen, uh, to help tutor during school hours those people who were slow in a particular subject. And that was the that was a strength, by the way, of the one-room schoolhouse. So anyway, she started to teach me how to read phonetically, how to code of, of phonics. Gene, my, my internet cut out right when you said uh, how to read phonetically. Okay. So I'll just take up that my mother was starting to teach me how to read phonetically when I was nine years old. I was in fourth grade. And she gave me the code of the alphabet, which is essentially what each letter sounds like. And once you start to think of it as a code, now you don't know, have to know what, what the word is. We were being shown whole word uh, uh, reading, which is probably the way you were taught in school, which is to see the entire word as a picture and remember it. So when you come upon a word like that you've never seen before, like onomatopoeia, uh, you don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah. If you don't know how to pronounce it, maybe you don't know how to ask someone else what it is. You might be able to go to a dictionary, but when you're 9 and 10 years old, the dictionary really isn't that much of a tool yet. But uh, by being able to sound out the words, uh, I learned how to read, essentially, in, in one year. And the value, uh, an additional value to this was my father went to school on the eastern seaboard where the so-called progressive, in quotes, uh, education was already in place. So he learned uh, the see and say method or the whole word method of, of, uh, of reading. And he mentioned how difficult it was for him and he didn't really know specifically uh, that he was later in life learning how to use phonics or how to sound out a word. And that's usually the progression in our modern day schooling is that people learn the see, say, and then later in, in a very inexplicit way start to sound out the words once they know the, the, the way the, the letters sound. And so it's kind of backwards. At any rate, I went from being in – one year, I went from being the worst reader in the class to being uh, the best. And uh, all of a sudden, my, my mother took on uh, 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 higher qualities than what I had seen in her up to that point. She, she really stood out as, as being a, a hero in my mind at that point. So that, that was of great help. That's pretty awesome, and then, man. Yeah, it really was. And then... Um, I was complaining to her uh, later in, in that year that uh, I, I just didn't understand what these rules of grammar were. So all she did was go back and teach me within a five-day period of time the essentials of what I later, much later in life, I was 33 years old before I ever knew that what she was teaching me was general grammar rather than the specific or special 
grammar that I was being taught in school. And uh, uh, we just got in the car. She'd drive me to the school in the morning. We just got in the car, and she said, I'm just going to start pointing things out to you, and you tell me what they are. So we drove out. We, we were backing out of the driveway, and she pointed next door, and she said, what's that? I said, it's a car that was parked in the driveway. What's that? That's that's a tree. What's that? That's a house. We're driving down the road. What, what are we driving on? Uh, a road. Um, what's that over there? That's a bush. What's sitting on it? That's a bird. And about then, she said, okay, everything that that I have pointed out and that you've responded to are nouns. That's what nouns are. In reality, those are the the things that nouns describe. And I really didn't get it till the next day. Okay, big deal. Those are nouns. And that night when I got home, she said, uh, who is that? And I said, that's my dad. How would you refer to him if not your dad? Well, as a person, uh, as a man, as as him. And she said, okay, well, those are pronouns. Those are things that stand in for the noun itself. And they're one step removed from the actual description of the object itself. Of course, the man uh, was the object itself, but him uh, is a pronoun. So I still wasn't getting the next day we drive out the the, uh, driveway. And she says, what is that man doing over there? And I said, he's walking. What is that car going by doing? I said, it's driving. Um, What happened with with that branch there? It fell. Then she said, okay, well, those are actions. Those are actions of the nouns that we were looking at yesterday. She went through a few more examples before I got it, but then suddenly the, the light went off. These were not empty abstractions anymore. These nouns, verbs, the next day we, we looked at, at, uh, at uh, uh, qualities of things or adjectives and adverbs. And the next day we looked at relationships, which, which are prepositional phrases. And uh, on, on Friday, she showed me what, what prepositions themselves were. How they how they connect um, relationships. So there I was. All of a sudden, they weren't um, just abstractions in my mind. They were actual things in reality, uh, and actions and relationships, and the attributes of those actions, relationships, and things, and and the world just seemed to focus itself. And that was my first understanding of how an abstraction could help me in the real world. It gave me real meaning uh, of what school or learning was about. And uh, I had other of my uh, uh, fellow students uh, ask me about how this abstract way of thinking was. And a lot of people... In, in my fourth grade class, uh, started to learn grammar for me. It wasn't from the teacher. It was from someone who understood. As I later, when I was 11 or 12, learned algebra from a fellow student in my, in my algebra class who got it. But the teacher 
having to follow a, a curriculum and a specific way of teaching it, was unable to communicate to me. So I went to my friend who used his own language or the language that I could communicate with to describe what algebra was to me. And this is how we learn. And this, again, started to add value to my life. This was some – these skills I found were portable. I could start using these, these skills uh, in other aspects of life, in investigating uh, anything that was expressed by words, I, I would start with a grammar. Later on, when my when my brain was more mature after after I'd entered uh, puberty, I could start to analyze what was being said, and and really start to frame the question. And when my analysis of what I was uh, being presented with started to become uh, clear to me, I started to understand. In other words. As my analysis proceeded, the, the subject that I was looking at or the, or the ideas that were presented to me started to become whole. A lot of times there were some contradictions, either, either from the way it was presented to me or more than likely the way I interpreted it. Somebody was describing something to me or, or a book was describing something to me and I was using interpretation or connotation of a word which the author or the person speaking uh, was not intending. It was the same word, but the, the connotation that I took was not what was, what was within the context of what was being said. So my analysis was to, the idea was to take all the contradictions within my own mind out of what was being said. And this accelerates learning at an incredible rate when you start learning how to take contradictions out um, methodically. And, of course, uh, later on in my teenage years, I, I learned uh, a little bit about Aristotelian logic and the, the four branches in there, um, which are – the common logical fallacies, which which uh, Jan Irvin is very familiar with using. Um, Jan Irvin is very entertaining on Facebook to watch and defend himself. Yeah, yeah, he he's tireless. <laughs> yeah, he'll be like, uh, "Sir, if you're going to talk to me, please remove this fallacy from your statement." Or mm -hmm. like, it's pretty, uh, but it's it's helpful because it's 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 like you know it it helps you guide what not to waste your time on or yeah. what what's what's actually a con if somebody's actually looking to converse with you or if they're just looking to attack you yeah yeah and i uh ever since i first did my uh first set of podcasts with with jan in 2009 i really wasn't that up with uh with the internet and social media and whatnot but i'm just i'm just dumbfounded by the amount of of attack that, that goes on <laughs> I, in, in this media. I am too. And, uh, I mean, I'm not gonna, like, I don't, thankfully I don't have anybody attacking me, um, personally, but, uh, mm -hmm. well, no, that's not true. I mean, like I, I, I did in, in person and I, and like recently, like what was interesting though, was because before I listened to that podcast, pat, podcast series with you and Jan uh -huh. and started studying logic myself, like, 
people would would pretend like it, it was like people had taken like a course in logic and then they would use fake logic against me because uh-huh. I wasn't really familiar with it. And like they would they would try to tell me that I was wrong and I would just I like I, di- I didn't know how to defend myself because I didn't yeah. understand what fallacies were and everything else like that. So um, I think it's it's helpful because it's you can point out like you can see well, we all know it's helpful. But like like for me personally, like I could defend myself without res- with just like without calling someone an asshole or just resulting to ad hominem attacks. And uh, it was easier to say, look, I don't understand what you're trying to say to me because you're using this fallacy. So, yeah, be consistent. Yeah. Can can you be more specific? And uh, well, that's when you learn from a conversation. But again, that that's what I'm not seeing uh, a lot uh, on the internet are our conversations. There's someone who states a premise, and then. Uh, the, the attacks seem to be 10 or 15 to 1 against, you know, and, and I'm just uh, dumbfounded by that. But that's, uh, that's human psychology, I suppose. But that's what I'm saying. When you, when you start early in life, and again, this is another realization that I've come to just in the last few years, is that I was fortunate to get a lot of this, a lot of these tips when I was young. Um, I was very comfortable speaking with adults, and I had uh, an uncle, for example. You just brought up personal attacks, uh, ad hominem. And uh, I had an uncle when I was 10 years old. He was he was just interested in all kinds of things. He he got my interest going. He was His hobby was watchmaking. He was of German descent, and he liked to put together the, all these little tiny wristwatches and whatnot. And... Um, he got me interested in that, but he was also quite interested in, in literature. So he introduced me uh, at age 10 to uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's um, essay, Common Sense. And he had also been reading to me, and he'd read throughout my, my childhood years. He used to read to me uh, from the various classics. But he, start, he was reading uh, portions of uh, Leaves of Grass some some poems of Leaves of Grass by uh, Walt Whitman. And I understood a lot of the, uh, of the connection between Whitman and what was said by Emerson. And um, Emerson was, was quite, a, quite an influence on Whitman. And so I started to ask, well, I, I'd interrupt his reading, and I'd say, well, didn't Emerson say this, or didn't Whitman say, wait a minute, didn't Whitman say... Didn't didn't and he said, "Wait a minute, Gene. You're you're. I can see that you're starting to get confused as to who said it and when it was said." And he said, "At some point, you're going to have your own." And he used this term, "worldview," and I'd never heard that before, so I didn't know what the heck a worldview was. And he says, "This is the way you, Gene, are going to see the world, and it's going to be unique to you." Just as what I the way I see it is unique to me, and everyone else will have a unique worldview. But one of the things that's going to save you time and effort is to concentrate on the ideas, because what you were questioning me about were the ideas that were being spoken by two different men, and you were trying to connect it to the person, to the personality. He says it's much better if you form an idea within your worldview 
that first you discard who said it and when it was said. And that way, when you see the same idea being expressed in a slightly different way, you're not connecting it with a person. You're connecting it with the idea itself. And then it struck me that that was what I needed to to concentrate on, on what was being said rather than who said it. So as I started to read, and I took it to an extreme, uh, unfortunate to say, I, I just started using, um, I, I just threw out uh, nouns, personal nouns altogether, <laughs> just didn't <laughs> concentrate on on names at all. And to this day, I'm just terrible with names. But it did help in in seeing the connection of one idea to another and how knowledge has grown through history. Uh, it, it brought a, um, a, 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 personal, a personal relationship between myself and history as, it, as expressed through historians or, or in, <clears throat> excuse me, in a particular subject because I was concentrating on the idea. So that's another way that you can, that you can uh, get into conversation with people and, and begin to learn from them is to discuss a particular idea rather than you hold this view and I hold this view. And that leads to, to learning. Again, learning. Learning seems to be the, the most satisfying thing that we can do in life uh, along with its application. Uh, as Emerson <laughs> said, every action is preceded by a thought. So the more you can string your thoughts together, the more you can bring the art of life in your and choose the actions consciously rather than reacting. Hey, Gene, sorry about that. Let me go check something real quick. I'm sure. Gonna, I'm going to yeah. hit pause. Um, sometimes I've been having an issue with this computer, and uh, I have a media server, and a lot of times it kicks. It's been kicking on automatically, and it eats up quite a bit of bandwidth. So give me one second. Uh-huh. Very well organized, so I don't feel too badly being able to, to follow that. But, but uh, I'm happy to see that Drew, uh, usually when, when he um, has, has been interviewed, he connects the two. And, and that, the trivium and nonviolent communication. And really you can connect, what I'm getting at is that you can connect the trivium to just any, uh, about any uh, intellectual um, idea. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. No. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It's it's uh, it's 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 helped me with it's helped me develop my worldview and and filter what is actually I, I guess like filtering through like conspiracies in a sense and figuring out okay what is actually legitimate and what is actually false and and. Because before I would just kind of believe I would just read everything and kind of let the pieces fall, mm-hmm. and then once I had a guide, it was like because uh, I mean I was a huge Ron Paul fan, and then I went back and listened, and you said, yeah, you know Ron Paul is is the guy that's he represents this for 
for us as like that he's our opinion, but it's meant to just draw us back in. And then like years later, after you said that, like Ron Paul's done running for elections, he sues Ron Paul.com through the UN. And I'm like, wow, like he's really not what he says he is. Like he's really not representing what he says he is. Well, when I made that comment, uh, a lot of people thought that I was personally attacking Ron Paul, and I was discussing that in the context of the Hegelian dialectic, that the best way politically to be in charge of your, uh, uh, the best way to fight your opposition, as as, uh, Vladimir Lenin said when he first took over the the, uh, reins of the Soviet Union, the best way to control your opposition is to be in control of it. Yeah. So, uh, as I looked at Ron Paul, I mean, I don't know the man personally. Um, yeah. Those may be his his opinions. Yeah. Those, those may be his his heartfelt opinions. But on the other hand, uh, they were using the 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 status quo or the the right and the left, the wing of the eagle. Uh, they were using the status quo, uh, or the status quo was using that just so that your opinion can be, can be known because most people hold his, his position, but that doesn't mean we're going to use it. We're just going to, we're just going to use this as, as, uh, as a placebo for you that it might come down the line at some point. Now be quiet because your voice is being heard through Ron Paul. And then, of course, you've seen that that government in this country has just progressed as usual. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if it's a Democrat or a Republican who's in there. Um, uh, State government just grows and grows and grows. Yeah, it's just the the show. Like, well, something I kind of realized was it's like Ron Paul was great to, I mean, and you just said this, was... I mean, just to to get people paying attention again, paying attention mm-hmm. to the game that mm-hmm. was going on to the, or as like Jesse Ventura said, the 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 Washington Wrestling Federation. It gets you paying yeah. attention to the the, the the debate and and everything else like that. But um, to more interesting things, back to Gino Denning and the art of living. Okay. <laughs> well, let me let me just move on here. Um, I think that particular little tidbit about paying attention to the ideas before you pay attention to the author and, and the time in which it was uttered. I'm, I'm not, don't do what I did, which was to completely throw away who said it and when it was said, but the primacy in, in a, in a subject of study or an intellectual debate, the primacy of the idea that you focus upon that first and then uh, who said it? Because at some point it, it does become important who who said it and when it was said. Uh, but that's that's just if if you're interested in in living a satisfying life, that's just one of the things that you want to bring into your toolbox of of looking at the world to bring into your world of view toolbox. But the next uh, uh, stage of my education was when I was 13 years old, I was, I was still going to public school, but I started working with my family dentist. Uh, I was just, as I say, my uncle gave me this proclivity to things mechanical. And so I was interested in, in 
transportation, uh, cars, airplanes, boats, whatever, uh, that were mechanical. And so I, I got very interested in building model airplanes at that time. We didn't have electronics to fool around with, so everything was mechanical. And the, my dentist saw some of my little model airplanes that I'd done, and he said, you, you have a pretty good uh, uh, use of your hands, coordination with your hands. He said, would you be interested in, in looking into dentistry? And so, I, of course, I didn't know what he, what he meant. He, I went to... Uh, on an appointment one day, and he took me back into his laboratory. And he explained it to me as this being a, a, a miniature of the manufacturing process of a factory. And we use metallurgy, and you use castings, and you use ceramics, and you, you hand fashion things, and it takes quite a bit of, of um, craftsmanship to put this together. And I, I just took to it like a duck to water. And so every day after school, he just happened to be on my way home, his office, and I'd stop in there and I'd spend two or three hours every day after school. And it turned out to be a, uh, an eight-year project. And, of course, uh, during the summer I was, I was working there, he started to pay me for the, the uh, crowns and bridges and the things that I started to make. And so it became a, uh, an income source. But he was also training me specifically in the, in the in the liberal arts and where he really concentrated on was in logic the the idea of defining words the definition of words and ideas um, uh, through uh, genera and differentia genera is to find what the concept or the word fits into an, a, a general a category like a dictionary its general category is book and its differentia is that it explains individual word usage of generally a language or the reason he had me concentrated on 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 this element so uh, uh, specifically was because dentistry of course as a as a highly refined technical uh, field has its own lexicon, its own vocabulary. So I had to learn a lot of the, the Latin and some of the Greek uh, terminology. But uh, this, this is where he started me uh, understanding how to ask questions of individual designations, individual words. And then later on, as we got a little bit more involved with uh, with formal logic, he, un he explained to me that there are only two things that that the brain does when it's uh, when it's trying to discern something, and it either takes ideas apart or it puts ideas together or generalizes. So what I was doing with with the lexicon of dentistry is I was looking at the lexicon itself, the the dictionary of dentistry, and and trying to understand how the various terms in there related. I'd already known how to use grammar. Uh, to relate to reality. And so we we're using all these terms, and I started to get more general with this idea because it's, it's a skill that you pick up. As he had me practice, finding the general position of the term and then how it differentiates from all the other words that are in that, 
in that category. Uh, when I went to to school, I just started to do that more in my studies in in elementary uh, chemistry and history and English, social studies, etc. So you start to pick up your and and this was not intentional, but my vocabulary started to grow exponentially, and it was just because I had this big world view, this genera, and then the little world view or the specifics. So I always looked at everything for the general category first, and then the differentiator, the specifics within it. And uh, again, I didn't explicitly understand this about the workings of my personal brain until I was age 33 and I came upon this uh, term uh, at a library in New Zealand uh, called the Trivium. It's when I discovered Dorothy L. Sayers' um, essay, The Lost Tools of Learning. Until I saw her use the term Trivium even though I knew what it was, I'd never heard it called the trivium. And once I started to, to utilize that term, uh, I started to investigate all kinds of other things, uh, all kinds of other writers who had, who had written specifically about the trivium or specifically about the, the uh, first three of the seven liberal arts. And that's when it really all started to come together. Um, when I was, well, it's come together in a, at, a, at a number of different times in my life that, that these kind of epiphany moments hit. And the epiphany is, is that there's more for you to learn in a systematic fashion. And by that time, by the, actually by the time I was in my early 20s, I had already become comfortable with my own judgment. So I had become comfortable with being my own authority, my own best authority. And uh, when my uh, teachers and, and professors and whoever decided that I wasn't following the curriculum as closely as they knew, as they said, that I could, I just didn't pay a lot of attention because possibly I wasn't interested or I already saw the connection to something else that I was interested in. And uh, when by the time I got to college, uh, I, I started out with, with a major, being that I was going to go into clinical dentistry, I started out with a major in zoology. So I spent two years in zoology and became familiar because there are a lot of laboratory classes, uh, laboratory uh, sessions that go along with the lecture classes in, in these scientific studies. Uh, as I went to the laboratories and started to become familiar with the uh, graduate assistants that that were heading up the laboratory sessions, I found out that you could um, you could audit courses, and you didn't have to follow the entire curriculum. So I started to become friendly with with uh, graduate assistants of all stripes in in the not only in the sciences but in the liberal arts. And uh, they would let me know I had I had a little uh, circle, uh, a, a little uh, circle of uh, of mentors who would tell me what was going to be uh, discussed 
in the next several lectures or what was going to be done in the next several laboratory sessions. And I'd just show up for that, for whatever I was interested in. And it got to the point where uh, I just dropped my studies, my formal studies, almost altogether. I, I switched uh, to, uh, to English, to liberal arts English, and then spent most of in which I was interested. And, and one of them was uh, logic that was being given as a part of a philosophy course. And I didn't take the whole philosophy course. It was a, it was a uh, two-semester uh, study, but I took the, the part on logic. And uh, that's where logic was really put together for me because it was taught in a way, in a very systematic way, starting with the logical fallacies, then term definition, then deductive uh, thinking, deductive analysis, and inductive generalization. And this is where I found out that in deduction, uh, you're, you're taking ideas, more specialized ideas, from already accepted general ideas. And this is essentially what is Aristotelian logic. This is the syllogism or connected discourse, taking general terms, taking three parts of it, and finding if if there are no contradictions within it, which will yield, uh, if if not truth, it will yield validity. In other words, your your system of of thinking about these these ideas is is valid. You may not have the answer, but if you if you stay on this course, you may possibly come to a true answer. And then, of course, uh, induction is coming from observation. You you observe the same phenomena uh, in a number of different cases, and you try to find the the uh, the, the point at which there there is coordination. And then you can make a generalized statement, and that is essentially the the uh, scientific method. You start the scientific method by observing phenomena in the real world, uh, trying to understand a particular thing, like why an apple happens to fall from a tree, and then you 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 uh, try to come up with a number of. You just go to your imagination or, or work that's already be, been done and put a bunch of hypotheses together as to why this might be the case. And uh, from the, that set of hypotheses, you try to devise an experiment to validate, to, to show the truth uh, through the validity of your hypothesis formation to devise an experiment in the real world. And if all those three go together, observation, hypothesis, and completed experiment, you can start to form a theory, a scientific theory of explanation. And the neat thing about science and the idea of a theory is the theory says, this is what we know about this phenomenon up to now. But being that our our knowledge is not complete or guaranteed accurate. There may be other information that comes in in the future 
in which we have to modify or replace this theory. And as long as you can devise a technology off of a theory that is useful to humans, uh, then you, you have created something uh, from man's mind to modify his environment, like a, a wheel or an airplane or a computer. We don't know exactly what electricity is, yet we know enough about it to devise something like the World Wide Web. Yeah, that's um, that's pretty. So you can see how fine this is. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Like everything, everything ties together. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, like something that's like kind of interesting now is. Um, I don't know if you've kind of noticed this, Gene, but like, uh, I feel like the scientific community isn't like they're very. Actually, there's a book about it. Um, I bought it. I'm trying to remember the name, and I've been meaning to read it. I have it on my Kindle, um, on my Kindle app. Uh-huh. But it's just kind of about how, um, because like the the way our education system is now, and like it's it's more about getting published than actually doing science. Yeah. So people will publish things without actually, without actually doing the research, or without actually, or or, or like the, like people will put the kibosh on things that might. I, I guess it's like science is more ego driven than science driven in a sense. Like that's kind of uh, a feeling that I've that I've gotten um, recently. Well, uh, we'll go back to the way I seem to view things in threes. It's not intentional; it just comes out like this, but. Um, in my worldview, uh, I found that there there are three basic modes in which man has has thought, and the first mode was uh, mythology. We'd see something, we'd want to explain it. We can most um, easily grasp an explanation by making it personal, by personalizing it, by saying that thunder is caused by this superhuman being up in the heavenly ocean, the the watery ocean that we see is blue, and the heavenly ocean that we see is blue. And because the thunder is coming from up above, it must be uh, a a superhuman up there uh, bashing his hammer against something, and that's what's causing the thunder and the lightning and so forth. So that's our first idea of explanation. And then to, to get that through... So that people, our, our progeny, don't have to rethink that. We poetically put it together so that if you, if you memorize the poem, you don't have to think about it again. You don't have to make up another story as to why there's thunder and lightning. And you put it in the form of a poem. And then you pass that down because writing hasn't come into being yet. And this is passed through multiple generations. And that impetus of using a person, or prior to that, uh, animism, using animals and plants, super, human, uh, super animals and super plants, or supernatural realms, are easier for us to get an explanation out of our natural surroundings, that which is apparent to our five senses. We use this supernatural realm to explain what's going on here. 
and we pass it on from generation through to generation through poetry, through the way we we uh, uh, use cadence and verse to make make poetry uh, um, learnable. So that's the first step that we get into, and actually, as as we go through time, uh, we find that. Possibly this isn't the only explanation. As we go through time, uh, institutions grow up, which guard these mythologies and these poems. And uh, they, they evolve into priesthoods. And now these priesthoods find that they can control uh, other people who aren't as familiar with, with the mythology and the poetry as they are. And so that's where the beginning of of politics uh, starts off. That that there are groups of people that that have it over other people, and you start to form um, uh, castes of people, classes of people, and um, that do different things throughout their entire lives. And they're led by these people who who are the keepers of the myth. And uh, when we've gone far enough with that, at some point along in time, rather than looking at people stories, which is really what mythology is, it's it's people stories in the supernatural realm, anthropomorphic stories in the supernatural realm, we start to look at the thing in itself. And one of the first places where where this was done in the Western world was by the what's come down to us as a philosophy. My wind up with that eventually here. Okay, we were uh, we were talking about um, the philosophy. You were talking about institutions, and yeah. then then from the institutions, I believe we were we were going to the uh, philosophy. Well, actually, we're going from the mythology. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. And the institutions that grew up around the, the mythology. The, we, you'll see that there are institutions that grow up al- along each three of these that I'm going to mention. And, of course, I'm now discussing uh, the second mode of, of general human thought, which rather than looking for explanations in the supernatural world, we're trying to look for explanations in the natural world itself. And as I mentioned, who we now call the father of Western philosophy, uh, Thales of Miletus, uh, decided that rather than than looking to a a supernatural God-being who lived beneath the sea that created, for example, and, and this is actually what he was, what Thales was looking into, was what creates earthquakes. And he decided rather than using the motivations of a super god being like Neptune or Poseidon who would shake the earthly ocean and that in turn would shake the land which is a, that is surrounded by ocean, uh, that that is what caused earthquakes, that it, that, it was the, that it was the natural phenomenon itself. And he actually explained that it was, it was the agitation of the, I'd already mentioned the the uh, heavenly ocean, but the sky started to shake first, 
agitate, and then that agitated the watery ocean, and then that agitates the land. Now, he was, as I say, he did not include the motivations or the anger or anything else about a supernatural God being in, in his explanation. Now, his explanation was wrong. Uh, it wasn't complete. But the idea that he was looking at natural phenomena itself for explanation is what we started to call philosophy or looking at things with our with our five senses in the natural world and trying to find the connections within the natural world itself. And philosophy uh, in the West, again, the, the term philosophy, the love of wisdom, was coined by, by a successor to Thales, uh, Pythagoras. He's actually the one, someone asked him if he considered himself a wise person. He said, no, but I was, and, and he coined the term philosophy and that he was. All right, guys, that's the end of episode one. Look for episode two um, to come out sh soon. Um, so I opened with Wax Taylor, Que Sera, and then we're going to close out with Wax Taylor, Once Upon a Past. How shall I begin my story that has no beginning? The sampler, as well as the turntable, were principal tools largely responsible for the birth and development of hip-hop. With a sampler, any drum beat, any guitar riff, any sound that could be recorded could be used as part of a new composition, a new contextualization. The recording you are listening to now is an example.
cultural production, at least musically, but that was full of possibilities by virtue of being able to freely appropriate from the musical past to make new combinations and thus new meanings. The story demonstrates that a society, quote, free to borrow and build upon the past is culturally richer than a controlled one.